Welcome to The Lead. I'm Erica Hill in for Jake Tapper. We start with our 2020 lead and President-elect Joe Biden moving full steam ahead with his preparations to take office. Just moments ago, meeting with mayors from across the country, even as President Trump remains behind closed doors and continues to block the official presidential transition. Today, Biden also naming the first members of his cabinet, along with a handful of national security staff, a roster of experienced players in Washington, and a few history makers as well, including the first Latino and the first immigrant nominated to serve as Secretary of Homeland Security, Alejandro Mayorkas, the first woman nominated to lead the intelligence community, Avril Haines, and the first ever presidential envoy for climate, former Secretary of State John Kerry. Tony Blinken nominated as Biden's Secretary of State. And as CNN's Jeff Zeleny reports, on his way into that event with many of the nation's mayors, Biden revealed why he announced these cabinet picks first. President-elect Joe Biden's cabinet is taking shape, announcing today his intention to elevate seasoned advisors from the Obama administration into new history-making roles. Why do you go with national security first? Because it's national security. Before a virtual meeting with the U.S. Conference of Mayors, Biden unveiling key members of his national security team, including Alejandro Mohorquez, who would become the first Latino to run the Department of Homeland Security the agency tasked with the nation's immigration policy. Avril Haines, a former deputy CIA director who would become the first woman to lead the nation's intelligence community as director of national intelligence. And John Kerry, the longtime senator and former secretary of state to serve as an international climate czar, a new post underscoring Biden's commitment to fighting climate change. The president-elect is wasting no time filling his team. Expediting his announcements, in part, CNN has learned, because President Trump is still seeking to sabotage the outcome. Biden making clear again today he is surrounding himself with experienced hands, many of whom he's worked with for years in the Senate and White House. And now on a personal note, it gives me particular pleasure to introduce a man who has been my mentor, my partner, my friend, and the greatest public servant I know, the Vice President of the United States, Joe Biden. That's Tony Blinken, a longtime advisor, now to be nominated as Secretary of State. Jake Sullivan, another longtime aide, to be named as National Security Advisor. And Linda Thomas-Greenfield, a veteran Foreign Service officer who served in posts around the world, to be U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations. Through the announcements, Biden is seeking to send the world a message that he intends to prioritize rebuilding America's freight alliances. I think it's going to be important uh, to recognize that the the confidence that our allies had and the world had in American leadership is not going to be restored overnight. Former President Barack Obama praising Biden's pick, saying they send a signal to allies of strength and stability. They are going to be greatly relieved and pleased to see uh, uh, people like Tony. There is going to be a lingering sense that America's still divided. You know, the, some of the shenanigans that are going on right now around the election, uh, that is making the world question how reliable uh, and steady the U.S. may be. Biden will take office in just 58 days, even though Trump's General Services Administration has declined to ascertain the outcome of the election. Today, they told congressional Democrats they would offer a briefing on the delay next week. Now, congressional Democrats are saying that that is unacceptable. But, Erica, this transition move, uh, news is moving fast here. We have just confirmed a few moments ago that Janet Yellen will be 
nominated to be the Treasury Secretary in this administration. We're told that that President-elect Biden has settled on Janet Yellen. Of course, she's the uh, longtime head of the Federal Reserve. If confirmed, she would be the first woman to lead the Treasury Department. So this announcement will formally be coming possibly tomorrow, likely next week. But again, continuing this just expedited announcement of the Biden cabinet here. And so far, filling uh, his pledge of having a cabinet of diversity with several firsts on that list today, Erica. Yeah, certainly. Uh, and that last tidbit there as well. Jeff Zeleny, thank you so much. Breaking moments ago, another legal defeat for the Trump team as the Pennsylvania Supreme Court rejected the Trump campaign's effort to block the counting of certain absentee ballots in the state. As seen as Caitlin Collins reports. President Trump stayed behind closed doors again today as he retreats from public view while making desperate attempts to delay the results of the election. President. 13 of his last 20 days have included no public events, and when he has been in front of cameras, he's refused to take questions. Publicly, it may be the quietest period of his presidency, but sources say it's anything but behind the scenes. Thank you, Rudy. Despite having her speak at last week's press conference, Trump's campaign is now trying to distance itself from attorney Sidney Powell after she peddled baseless conspiracy theories about voting machines and accused Georgia's Republican governor of crimes. What we are really dealing with here and uncovering more by the day is the massive influence of communist money through Venezuela, Cuba, and likely China. Allies called Trump this weekend and urged him to drop Powell as he watched others criticize her on TV. The content of the president's legal team has been a national embarrassment. The campaign issued a statement saying Powell is not a member of the legal team or Trump in his personal capacity. But the president is still pursuing his own baseless theories and raising money while doing so. His campaign has sent 332 fundraising emails since the night of the election, claiming it's for election defense, while only a small portion goes toward his legal fights, and the rest is for his new political action committee that'll help him maintain influence in the GOP. The fundraising pitches make no mention of how Trump's campaign and its Republican allies have lost or withdrawn at least 30 cases, including when a federal judge dismissed its last major effort to delay certification of votes in Pennsylvania this weekend. Pennsylvania Senator Pat Toomey urged Trump to accept his loss and says he's reached out to the White House. At some point, you exhaust those possibilities. I think the president has reached that point in in Pennsylvania. He appears to have reached that point in Georgia. Michigan wasn't even close. President-elect Joe Biden is moving ahead despite Trump's effort to hinder his transition and will announce several top national security picks tomorrow. Trump's first defense secretary, James Mattis, is offering them some advice, helping author an article in Foreign Policy magazine today that urged the new administration to drop the America First motto from its national security strategy and invest in relationships with allies. And Erica, the Trump campaign has now suffered another legal blow because the Pennsylvania Supreme Court just rejected this effort by the Trump campaign to block the counting of some 8,000 absentee ballots because they were missing information on that outer envelope that comes with those absentee ballots. And a justice on the Pennsylvania Supreme Court said that, yes, that was a technical violation, but said it did not warrant the wholesale disenfranchisement of thousands of Pennsylvania voters. 
Caitlin Collins with the latest for us. Caitlin, thank you. Joining me now to discuss scene is Chris Saliza and the Wall Street Journal, Sabrina Siddiqui. Sabrina, as we look at this, there really are some, you know, history makers in the announcement that we saw from the Biden camp today. We've got the first uh, climate envoy, the first woman to lead the intelligence community, the first immigrant to be nominated as Homeland Security Secretary. Clearly, uh, the president-elect looking to send a message here, Sabrina. Yes, I think that there are two concurrent themes with respect to the names that we're seeing from President-elect Joe Biden so far to serve in his administration. And one, as you note, is the history makers, the first uh, woman to be DNI, as well as the first Latino to be at the head of the Department of Homeland, Homeland Security. Now, the nomination pending for Janet Yellen, who if confirmed would be the first female to lead the Treasury Department. And one thing that Biden had said often on the campaign trail is that he wanted to assemble a cabinet that reflected the nation's diversity. And so some of these uh, individuals we see, I think, reflect that commitment that he made. At the same time, we're also seeing some veterans of the Obama administration, people who have been by Biden's side for many years, if not decades, who are now returning uh, to serve by his side when he takes office in January. People like Tony Blinken, of course, his choice for Secretary of State, Jake Sullivan, who will be his national security advisor. And I think that it goes back to Biden having a very trusted inner circle uh, during the years that he has of experience he has cultivated in Washington, and also just this sense of restoring experience and stability to the government, which was, of course, another centerpiece of his campaign. Chris, when you look at that experience, right, Jeff Selling called this the who's who of Washington. It is about those relationships, mm-hmm. as Sabrina pointed out. Um, also important to note, though, it's not exactly a team of rivals. No, I mean, largely these are people who have been around Joe Biden for a very long time. Ron Klain, for example, his chief of staff mm-hmm. in the White House, was his chief of staff as vice president. Tony Blinken, uh, secretary of state nominee, was his national security advisor. I mean, he, he is someone who – Joe Biden is not new to politics. He's been doing this since the early 1970s. So you you accumulate a lot of people, and, and to his credit, most of those people have stayed loyal to him throughout a long uh, career. I do think it is important to note, Erica, we're always uh, – every president is looking back to the one before and reacting in some way, shape, or form. That's especially true with uh, President-elect Biden and outgoing President Trump. Just take Tony Blinken, for example, Secretary of State nominee, a, a guy who's really served in the Clinton administration, served in the Obama administration, as I said, was National Security Advisor to Vice President Biden. Contrast that with who Donald Trump chose as Secretary of State, his first one. Rex Tillerson, now a guy of uh, uh, remarkable credentials, but someone who had never been in government before. He was the head of a gigantic company in Exxon. I think that you have to look at those two, and that explains a lot of how these two men envision the presidency and who they want around them. As we look at what is happening with the current president, Sabrina, we have not seen him in days. I mean, except to go to the golf course, he's tweeting, as we know, more Republicans now starting to come forward. Uh, Liz Cheney, of course, member of House Leadership, uh, Pat Toomey, who we just heard from uh, in one of the pieces. But but what about the rest of the party? When do they need to step forward and admit that this is where we're at? Joe Biden's the president-elect. Time for the president to move forward. Well, in many ways, that with time was yesterday, if not last week. But as you point out, we're starting to hear at least some Republicans come around and 
push for the president to accept defeat and to pave the way for a smooth transfer of power. Senator Lisa Murkowski of Alaska, another Republican who spoke out and said this process now needs to take place. Uh, you pointed to Pat Toomey, Senator Lamar Alexander is another, Shelley Capito from West Virginia. So you're starting to see a little bit of the dam breaking, but I do think that it's telling that so far the president has the backing of the majority of Republicans on Capitol Hill. And what that really does is it reinforces the hold that he has over the Republican Party, the influence that he continues to wield. And the consequence of that is to Twofold. One, it's that it's created this sense of doubt in the minds of at least perhaps half of the electorate about the integrity of the election and the legitimacy of the Biden presidency, even though it bears repeating time and again that there's no evidence of widespread fraud. And also the other consequence is that without this ascertainment and this delay in the transition, it is putting the incoming administration at a disadvantage at a time when the next president, President-elect Joe Biden, uh, will be taking office against the backdrop of a pandemic that has infected 12 million people nationwide, left more than 255,000 dead, obviously in, in the midst of an economic recession and a, a nationwide calls for racial justice. And so there is also just an enormous consequence of mm -hmm. having this process delayed each day, I'm told by Biden advisors, is incredibly costly as they try and, and uh, create and as they try to transition yeah. into government. And so that's really the consequence, I think, of the Republicans not speaking out against the president and trying to force his... Right. Remaining quietly. Does that, quickly, Chris, before we let you both go, what's mm -hmm. remarkable, too, is I think the way that the president is clearly trying to hold on to the party itself, which you alluded to, Sabrina. Oh, but yes. when we look at these emails, I mean, by CNN's own tally, it's what I believe it's 300, uh, more than 330 fundraising emails. And if you look in the fine print there, 75 percent of your donation is not That's about right. helping those legal battles. It's essentially it's going to this pack the president has set up. It's a post-presidency slush fund. Yes. Uh, first of all, shout out to Betsy Klein, our colleague who has been uh, keeping track of how many in the 300s, as you say, fundraising emails since the election by Donald Trump. This is a grift, uh, Erica. This is an attempt to cull money from willing donors to say, mm -hmm. we'll fight this election recount battle. But they're not really. What it is, is like so many things. This is about Donald Trump. Donald Trump wants to retain influence. It's why he endorsed Ronald Romney McDaniel to be the RNC chairman going forward. That's not something presidents, outgoing presidents do. It's why most of the money goes to this pack because he wants to stay relevant. And that's why he will keep keeping his name out there for 2024 for as long as he possibly can. I know the election just ended, but that is just the reality. I think he will continue to do that. Yes, we know how these things work, though. You're right. Uh, Crystal is a Sabrina Siddiqui. Appreciate it. Thank you both. A third drug maker delivering really positive vaccine news. Why this actually could be the most promising of them all. Plus, uh, you likely are clear we're still in the middle of a pandemic. You wouldn't know it, though, if you look at pictures like these from over the weekend, packed airports despite the CDC pleading with Americans to stay home. Welcome back. More promising coronavirus vaccine news today. A third drug maker, AstraZeneca, says on average its vaccine is 70 percent effective. CNN senior medical correspondent Elizabeth Cohen uh, joins us now live. So this is really encouraging news. The company, though, of course, isn't done with its trials yet. 
That's right. They're not done with their trials, Erica. In fact, this is reports from trials in the UK and Brazil. AstraZeneca is still doing its trial here in the United States. And so this data is preliminary. And it's really, to be frank, not as good as the data that we saw from some other companies. Let's take a look at this comparison. So AstraZeneca is releasing or announced today that their vaccine is 70 percent effective. Moderna's was almost 95 percent effective and Pfizer's was 95 percent effective. And I will note that Moderna and Pfizer had considerably more people in their studies. And, you know, scientists always feel better when they have more people because it's more data. You feel better about the results. So while AstraZeneca's vaccine is looking good, there are still a lot of questions about their data. And it's not the final chapter for this study. Erica? Okay, so encouraging, but as, as we always point out, we do need a little more information. Uh, meantime, there's the CDC advisory committee that's meeting today to talk about the distribution of any FDA-approved COVID vaccine. So in reality, when can people expect to get vaccinated, the average person? So we don't know for sure, but there have been some comments made by Dr. Anthony Fauci at the NIH and also Dr. Monsef Slawi, who's with Operation Warp Speed. So let's go over what they've said. It's a forecast and like a weather forecast, this could be wrong, but this is the framework that they are putting out there. This is sort of their outlook. And so what Dr. Fauci says is that towards the latter half of December, he expects that we will start vaccinating high risk individuals. We're talking about essential workers like police officers, healthcare workers, the elderly people with underlying medical conditions. Then he said, we won't start vaccinating the rest of the country until the end of April. We won't start with that with, with everybody else until the end of April. And so Dr. Slawi says that he thinks that by May, we will have immunized 70% of the U.S. population. If that's true, that really is remarkable. To come up with a vaccine in less than a year and to vaccinate 70% of the population in what would be about six months would really be amazing. It may not happen that fast. It may take a few more months, but still, this really is and will be an incredible achievement. Yeah, it certainly is. Um, so that same CDC committee uh, it says that today Americans should really prepare for the possibility that after you get vaccinated, you may not feel that great. Maybe you'll feel a little bit unwell. What are you hearing about that? Is this similar guidance to what we hear after we get the flu vaccine? You know, you do hear that when you get the flu vaccine, but actually there's some data that's showing that this one may be even worse. There were there was a considerable number of people who took the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccine who felt, I'm going to use a technical word here, Erica, yicky afterwards. <laughs> they had headaches. They had a low-grade fever. As a mom, I think you'll appreciate that word. Yeah, they do. had headaches. <laughs> they had fevers. They had body aches. And I'm sure your children have felt this way on occasion. And it's, you know, that that is just something I think that people are going to have to accept. Not everyone felt this way, but some people did feel this way. The mm -hmm. trick here is that these are two-dose vaccines. You, give, you get one, and then about a month later, you get a second one. There's a serious question about whether people are going to show up for the second one if they didn't feel so great after the first one. What people will have to keep in mind is, look, at the end of this, I have a 90%, 95% chance of being immune to COVID. It is worth feeling a little bit yick for a couple of days. I will happily take a little yicky uh, if it brings me that vaccine. Elizabeth, great to see you. Thank you. Three million travelers boarding planes over the weekend. This is coronavirus records continue to be shattered nearly every day. Why this could be a Thanksgiving recipe for disaster. 
in our health fleet, a Thanksgiving travel spike is coming at the most dangerous time in this pandemic. The TSA reporting more than 3 million people passed through airport security over the weekend. During that same time period, more than half a million new COVID cases were reported in the U.S. And as Athena Jones reports, Americans are traveling despite the CDC asking them to stay home this Thanksgiving. November, the worst month of the pandemic so far. Sunday marking the 20th day in a row with more than 100,000 new COVID-19 infections reported, adding more than 3 million new cases in just over three weeks, a quarter of the total. Hospitalizations nationwide breaking records for 13 straight days. Illinois, one of 19 states setting records over the weekend. In many places, lines to get tested before Thanksgiving stretch for blocks. I want the American people to know that we are at a dire point in our fight with this virus by any measure. Cases, positivity, hospitalizations, deaths. I'm asking Americans, I'm begging you, hold on just a little bit longer. Keep Thanksgiving and the celebration small and smart this year. With the holiday just days away, clear indications Americans are not heeding the CDC's warning to stay home to stop the spread, setting new records for pandemic air travel with more than a million people flying on Sunday alone. This even after the CDC said more than 50% of new infections have come from people who didn't know they had the virus. One of the spots, if you want to call them, where you have a risk is seemingly innocent family friends get together indoors. Despite the warning signs, Kentucky's attorney general is joining a federal lawsuit to stop the state's Democratic governor from closing schools to limit the virus's spread. While the governor of Texas, which has the most COVID cases in the country, is vowing his state won't shut down again, arguing most transmission is occurring in people's homes. Other hard-hit cities and states announcing new restrictions. Starting today in Washington, D.C., all Smithsonian museums, including the National Zoo, will close temporarily for a second time as cases in the region rise. Multiple college football games are now canceled due to COVID. And in Los Angeles County, starting Wednesday, outdoor dining will be shut down. California Governor Gavin Newsom and his family are now quarantining after three of his children were exposed to a highway patrol officer with the virus. But with so many people traveling and uneven restrictions across the country, experts fear the worst. All you're going to see is a week, two weeks from now, a huge increase in what's already a horrendous spike. And speaking of that already horrendous spike we're seeing getting worse, AAA predicts up to 50 million people will travel over this Thanksgiving holiday in one way or another. As one ER doctor put it, uh, if only one out of 100 of those people ends up transmitting or catching the virus, that's more than half a million new coronavirus cases. Erica, talk about talk about putting it in perspective. Athena, thank you. Uh, joining me now, emergency physician at Brown University, Dr. Megan Ranney, who is the co-founder of Get Us PPE. You know, Dr. Ranney, I'm not sure if you heard that at the end there, what Athena said, but that statistic that one doctor gave us, I mean, when we look at all of the Americans traveling right now and so many predicted to continue doing so, if they insist on doing it, is there a way to travel safely at this point? So the safest answer, Erica, is absolutely to not travel. And not just to not travel, but also to not celebrate Thanksgiving indoors with people who are not part of your own household, the people you live with every single day. That is the safest option. The next safest option after that would be to drive somewhere, have a dinner, but do it outside, and don't spend time indoors unmasked. You know, Thanksgiving is just this 
perfect medium for spread of the virus. You're spending time inside, without a mask, close together for hours on end. And as Athena just said, if only 1% of travelers happen to spread or catch this virus, we're looking at over 500,000 new infections across the country in the next two to three weeks, which is just a staggering number on top of the approximately 200,000 that we're already seeing per day. Yeah, absolutely. Um, You know, you've been battling this for for nine months um, and you have been sounding the alarm that entire time. I just wonder at this point for you and your colleagues, do you feel like throwing up your hands sometimes at the fact that people just aren't paying attention? You know, as a healthcare provider, I never throw up my hands. I just kind of go at it a little more doggedly, but it is getting frustrating and exhausting for us. You know, we are there to take care of our patients. Uh, We will show up day after day with or without adequate personal protective equipment because that's what we need to do. We are currently signing up for extra shifts to cover our field hospitals, to cover our pediatric hospitals where we're putting adult patients because many states have run out of room in their adult hospitals right now. Uh, But it gets really tiring and it's tough to hear people say, well, I don't wanna miss Thanksgiving. You know, so many of us miss Thanksgiving every year to take care of patients. And so many more of us are gonna miss Thanksgiving this year because it's the right thing to do. And we hope that Americans see that too. Yeah, I would hope so. You know, you mentioned with or without the correct PPE. Um, I I was interested. So the former FDA commissioner uh, writing an op-ed today arguing it's time for people to start using an N95 mask or an equivalent and saying that healthcare workers have dedicated supply chains. So it's okay now. Right. We heard in the beginning we needed to to ration those. Um, But, you know, you and I talked just yesterday and it seems like you don't always have everything you need or your colleagues don't always have what they need. So I'm just curious how you feel about that guidance. Um, You know, go out and get yourself an N95 mask, average American, when perhaps the doctor who may need it can't. Yeah, I am concerned about that guidance. There is certainly truth to the fact that surgical masks and N95s are more effective at preventing Mm -hmm. spread of the virus than your average cloth mask. That's why we don't wear cloth masks in the hospital. But for your average short social interaction, those higher level masks really aren't necessary. And as you just mentioned, we still lack adequate supplies in much of the country. Now, the larger hospital chains, for the most part, are okay. They've found ways to build up their supply again. But those small critical access hospitals, nursing homes, home health care workers, those are the people who still lack PPE. Those are the people who are getting sick at a higher rate. And those are the people who need access to those N95s. And if every American goes out and buys one, there's not going to be enough left for those people that still don't have it and are on the front lines. I will also add, Erica, that N95s are really only effective if you've been fit tested. There are a few different sizes and a few different types. So just buying one and wearing it without getting properly fit may not put you at as much uh, protection as you Mm -hmm. think it might. Um, we've seen these new restrictions added uh, across the country. L.A. County going so far as to now restrict outdoor dining as well as indoor dining. Is there one measure you think at this point that would be most effective nationwide? The one thing I think most effective would be to have a single national strategy. It is so confusing for people to go from one state to another. Listen, I live in Rhode Island, and if I travel across the border, I potentially have different rules and regulations than I do in my own little state. 
Um, but beyond that, the next thing would be universal masking. We know that it works to decrease transmission of the virus. And after that, it is the avoidance of those indoor gatherings. Um, we've talked a lot about household transmission, but indoor restaurants, indoor uh, houses of worship, anytime you're in a place like that without a mask, that is also a nidus for the spread of infection. And so universal masking, then avoiding those indoor spots, um, those would be what I would love to see. All right, we'll cross our fingers. Dr. Megan Randy, always good to have you with us. Thank you. Thank you. A breaking news out of Michigan where the state just voted to certify the election results. Breaking news, the state of Michigan just moments ago voting to certify Joe Biden's victory, meaning Biden will now formally receive the state's 16 electoral votes. This is another blow to President Trump's efforts to overturn the election results through legal challenges. Let's go straight to CNN's Diane Gallagher in Lansing, Michigan. So, Diane, uh, one of the two Republican members of this board of state canvasser, state canvassers, excuse me, is actually who put this vote over the top. Yeah, that's right, Erica. And this was that one Republican that we had been talking about who had not made any comment beforehand, uh, who came and started the meeting by basically saying that uh, what we're supposed to do is review and certify the already county certified results. And I don't see any other opportunity here for me to do something otherwise. He did that in turn voting to certify. Now, the other Republican who had been telling people beforehand that he was not going to vote for certification, well, he didn't vote for certification, but he also didn't vote against it. He chose to abstain from the vote. So Michigan certified the results of the election by a 3-0 vote, that other Republican abstaining from the vote. Now, Erica, here's what happens next. Essentially, all of them, there was a bipartisan agreement that there needs to be a post-election audit to take a look at what happened here in Michigan, go through the results in the different counties. This also opens up now for any candidates at any level that may want to request a recount or an additional audit or investigation. This is what the Secretary of State had continued to talk about, saying that the election needed to be certified before they could move on and do anything else in terms of a recount or another mm -hmm. audit, Erica. But uh, high drama leading up to this, and it turns out they ended up certifying today. High drama indeed. Diane Gallagher with the latest in Lansing. Diane, thank you. Uh, well, today the governor of New Jersey Putting it in writing, formally calling on the Trump administration to recognize Joe Biden as president-elect, a process Governor Phil Murphy says could save lives during this once-in-a-century pandemic. Writing in his strongly worded letter, quote, your failure to begin the transition process risks serious harm to the health and safety of our residents. In New Jersey, Governor Phil Murphy joining me now. Governor, good to have you with us. So your letter specifically called out the head of the General Services Administration, saying her failure to recognize Joe Biden's win could impact vaccine and PPE distribution. How so? What's your main concern there? Good to be with you, Erica. By the way, she's no relation. Um, listen, this is an incredibly complex process. We did just have a very good call with the White House team. If you think about this in your mind's eye, it's a triangle. So we are in, we've got open lines of communication to the White House and the current team. We've got certainly open lines of communication down the other leg of the triangle to the Biden transition team, but they're not speaking. And th this is an incredibly complex uh, challenge. Uh, I think the vaccine news of late, by the way, has been really good. Mm -hmm. So but but we, we got it. We need all oars rowing together in harmony 
uh, and let's set you know, separately deal with the certification and the lawsuits and all that sort of stuff. Uh, let's let's get them into a room together and 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 begin planning this together. Have you had any sort of a response to your letter? Not yet, not yet. Just sent just sent out. Uh, but we're going to stay at this. I mean, other governors believe this as well. I I, I can say that for sure. Uh, we we need all legs of that triangle connected. So why do you think, in your mind, why do you think the Trump administration is not moving forward in that vein? Well, I can't speak for them. Uh, obviously, they'll have to, they'd have to speak for themselves. And again, we've been able to find common ground with mm-hmm. them from the get-go here. Um, I, I personally believe, I, I know they, they're, they are very focused on confidence in and around the vaccine, as are we, and they have every right to be. That's a big challenge. I think by not opening up the lines with the Biden team, it undermines confidence. Um, I, I think confidence goes up immediately if, if all sides are, are seen to be working together for the, for the good of the American people. So mm-hmm. frankly, it's counterintuitive for me. Um, You know, as we look at what's happening, your state is reporting some record highs, obviously not where you want to be, especially after you had, you know, really brought those numbers down after the height in the spring. I know you've cited COVID fatigue, part of your new planning in the state, new restrictions, limiting outdoor gatherings to 150 people. I have to say, though, that still feels like a lot of people, even if they're outside. Indoor gatherings limited to 10 people. Um, Are you concerned that saying, hey, you can still hang out with 150 people outside might send the wrong message? Yeah, well, I, it's a good point. It was 500, and you're absolutely right. We beat the, the curve down almost unlike any other American state. Even when you're outside, though, we want you to have a face covering, uh, socially distant. Uh, so, for instance, we're in a big week for high school Thanksgiving football games. We don't want people congregating even when they're outside, never mind when they're inside. And obviously the holiday itself is of great concern to us, particularly with any multi-generational gatherings. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, folks have to do the right thing here. Uh, in Newark, um, listen, we've been watching the positivity rate. Uh, this is your state's second largest city. It is hovering around 20 percent. Uh, I know measures have been taken there. Uh, the mayor now asking people to shelter in place for 10 days. Should that be an order? Listen, I, th- I think we're the densest state in America, Erica. So here's the challenge with a state as dense as ours, particularly one that's not only dense, but it's spread across, believe it or not, 565 communities, and they're all packed in on top of each other. And the mayor of Newark is a star, by the way, and a great partner in all this. The problem is if you mandate something over here, you may have an unintended consequence uh, in a neighboring community. So his, his words are advisory. Uh, we support them. The mm-hmm. state executive orders are, are pretty stringent. Uh, as you mentioned a minute ago, we don't want any gatherings in, indoors over 10 people. Uh, restaurants closing at 10, we're allowing municipalities to close them indoors, that is, close them earlier. Uh, and obviously, uh, we're, we keep monitoring this literally minute to minute. I know one of your concerns, and frankly, one that we hear from officials across the country, is you're trying to balance these restrictions, right, the public health measures with the reality of the economic impact on businesses and on the community, the greater community. Um, Is there a point, though, where you have to perhaps, especially after this holiday, may have to look at closing down more businesses? You you have to have everything on the table. And we and we showed in March that we were prepared to do that. We we closed as fast and as hard as any American state. I hope, please, God, it doesn't come to that. 
uh, as you rightfully, the premise of your question rightfully highlights. I'll tell you what would give us a lot more degrees of freedom if Congress, especially the Republican Senate, could get around the table and get an agreement on a big stimulus package right now that would give lifelines to small businesses, unemployed folks, budgets like states and, and local to allow us to continue keeping people employed. That allows us more degrees of freedom that right now we just don't have. Yeah, that stimulus is so important uh, and, and nowhere to be seen at this moment. You're right. New Jersey Governor Phil Murphy, good to have you with us today. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Erica. More on our breaking news now on the election out of Michigan after a controversial vote there. Breaking news moments ago, it became official. Michigan certifying Joe Biden's victory in that state. The secretary of state saying democracy has prevailed and that Michigan survived an unprecedented attack. Certification is usually a run-of-the-mill process that, in classic 2020 fashion, became incredibly controversial. Joining me live to discuss something rare but welcome these days, a Republican and a Democrat who share views on this and even want to be together in an interview, Democratic Congresswoman Alyssa Slotkin, Republican Congressman Paul Mitchell. They co-wrote an op-ed over the weekend calling on President Trump to accept his loss and to allow for a peaceful transition. Good to have both of you with us. Boy, things have changed uh, since we talked about having you first uh, come on the program this morning. Um, Congressman Mitchell, I know you spoke a few days ago with one of the board members, Norman Schinkel. He's a Republican. He had indicated that he was going to vote against certification. Instead, he abstained. I'm just curious, what was that conversation like that the two of you had? Well, I expressed concerns about a number of things you heard in the Board of Canvassers meeting about the accuracy of the vote, about some misconduct, potential fraud, concerns about Dominion, a whole series of things, uh, uh, a number of them just conspiracy theories. And uh, it, it evolved to the place that, well, maybe we should just push back the vote so we can investigate and and as I said, there's no mechanism in Michigan law to do that. So, but he was he was very much in the mode of well, we should push back, we shouldn't certify. He abstained today, but he was very critical of uh, of the election process. It could always need improvement. We had a record vote. There's going to be some errors. There's going to be some things that you don't like. But mm -hmm. I think we had an election that spoke for it. We have a we have a president elect. It's Joe Biden, and we need to move forward. Uh, Congresswoman Slotkin, there were so many today county level clerks. There were local uh, election officials saying it is your duty uh, to certify this election. In fact, one said a vote against certification would show democracy is dying in Michigan. Was that your main concern? Do you agree? Well, listen, certainly we know they took something that was typically apolitical and made it political. Um, and uh, I think, importantly, it showed that there are rules, there are laws, there are procedures, and those things should be followed whether your team wins or not. And so certainly one of the concerns I know that I had going into this was kind of the, the hollowing out of democracy and what it means if you have people who just don't believe in our system anymore. So I'm glad that it worked. I'm glad that people did their job, and I'm glad that Michigan can go ahead and certify. You know, as we look at this, there is some concern, Congressman Mitchell, moving forward about these efforts led by the president, a number of Republicans as well, that if the president's M.O. is to sow doubt and confusion and to undermine the election, that could last well beyond 2020 and where we're at right now. How much of a concern is that for you, and how much is that a conversation with some of your Republican colleagues? Well, I think it's a conversation we're having a lot of people about standing up for what the most fundamental thing, the value of our vote and the importance in our republic. Uh, I think that's what I took an oath to. And uh, 
I, I, as Alyssa knows, I, I, there's a number of things her and I disagree about, but one thing we're both very much uh, uh, pledged towards, which is supporting our our country. And doing that means we need to have an effective transition. Um, failure to do that puts our country at risk from a national security perspective. Your previous guest was talking about uh, the issues around pandemic. While I don't agree with the governor of New Jersey a number of things, I do agree that failure to coordinate in dealing with the pandemic and dealing with the vaccine is another major issue we have in this country. Mm-hmm. We need to move forward. And to do that, we need the administration, we need the Trump administration to cooperate and recognize they lost an election. It's that simple. There's the moving forward, right, in terms of recognizing the results of the election, allowing that peaceful transition to begin taking place. And then there's just sort of a moving forward in general. And this is I'm going to throw this out to both of you, but I'll start with you, uh, Congresswoman Slocken. How do you start to do that now? Um, What is the message in Michigan that that ideally uh, can be heard across the country in terms of moving forward? Sure. Um, I think we have to give a lot of credit to the clerks and to the people who are involved in getting us this far and take our lead from that. Right. A lot of these folks have shown a lot of leadership, a lot of bravery. um, And we need to to say this is, you know, the time and the moment for people to stand up and do the same thing. I hope Michigan serves as that example. We were obviously under tremendous pressure. Our Republican colleagues were called to the White House and they resisted. Um, and we have a positive result today. So I hope that's the the example we set. Um, and then, as uh, Paul said, I mean, we serve on the Armed Services Committee together. I think we all need to remember that transition isn't just a political thing. It's about national security and protecting our homeland. Um, and we need to focus the country on that, on just protecting ourselves mm-hmm. and getting that handoff, that safe, responsible handoff before January. Then we got to figure out how to work together again. And I think Part of the reason Paul and I wanted to do this op-ed was because we know, or I, I mean, I'll speak for myself, that yeah. we, we have to govern together. We have to connect together and figure out how to, how to work together and disagree without being disagreeable. Well, I look forward to you two setting an example uh, as, we, as we head into January. I really appreciate you both taking the time to join us. Congresswoman Alyssa Slack and Congressman Paul Mitchell, thank you both. Uh, before we let you go this hour, we want to remember one of the 257 thousand American lives lost to coronavirus. John Scott Kingsit was a 73-year-old retired firefighter and a grandfather. His daughter, Julie, remembers him as a silent hero. He loved steam engine trains and road trips with his wife, Jane. They visited all 50 states. His true passion was firefighting. And in retirement, he went down to the firehouse every weekend just to say hello. Kingsit's wife was not able to be with him in his final moments, so she said goodbye to her husband of 52 years over FaceTime. Our deepest condolences to the Kingsit family and to all of those who have lost loved ones to this pandemic. I'm Erica Hill in for Jake Tapper today. Our coverage on CNN continues right now. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.